Today, we finish this letter with really a powerful picture of the people of a church community. All right, as we've gone through this letter of James, James is walking through and he's talking about, remember from the very beginning he told us he was speaking to Christians that had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he's writing this encouraging letter to say, hey, this is important in your Christian walk. You need to do this. You need to stop doing that. Sometimes it was tough. Some of the things that James says to us were pretty harsh and hard. Um, and, and other times he, he was encouraging us in, in more of a, a challenging way. And today he really describes what a church should look like. And he talks about a really key aspect of a healthy church, of a church that's functioning the way it needs to function. And, and I would say that that's important for us here today because as you guys know or, or may not know, churches, especially in our area, they're kind of in an identity crisis right now. A lot of churches are really trying to figure out who it is, who are we as a people, and what are we as a group, and how do we fit into our society and our culture at large, and, and there's an identity crisis going on. It's been going this way for, for several years. But the community that James describes here is bound together by two things. Their faith in Jesus and their devotion to prayer. These are two of the things that James says, this is what makes a church a church. It's a group of people that have a shared faith in Jesus and they're devoted to prayer. And I, that's going to be uh, what we're going to focus in on here today about this, especially this, this, this life of prayer that is in the church. Now, we know that as Christians, even if we have faith in Jesus and we're devoted to prayer, that doesn't mean that life is always going to be easy and everything's going to go smoothly. That's, that's not the way it is. But still, if you if you're, have a faith in him and a devotion to prayer, what you find is those things bind you together with other people. Other people that uh, may be different uh, around you. And in the good and the bad, in the celebration and in the sorrow, the victories and the defeats, in all the seasons of life, we're called to be together as a community of Christians. So, I'm going to tell you kind of the big point of this sermon right now. I'm not going to wait you, make you wait till the end or anything like that. So that way, if you're ready to check out already this morning, you're going to get it. So listen to this. This is the big point. The big point of this message today is that the activity and the attitude of the church should be shaped by prayer. The activity, the things that they do, and the attitude, kind of the posture of who they are as people, of the church should be shaped by prayer. All right? If you don't take anything else away from today, know that that's actually how a church should be received by the rest of the world around. That's how they should be shaped and changed and transformed. It's their people of faith and people of prayer. And their activity and their attitude is going to be shaped by that. And these prayers of faith, as James is going to describe them here for us, are really the currency of the church. It's how we operate. It's how we interact. Prayer is one of the key things that guides us and sustains us and directs us and unites us as a group of different people. And we are a group of different people. Different backgrounds and different cultures and, and, and different ideas and opinions and preferences and life experiences. 
And it's been said, you might have heard this before, that prayer doesn't change God. It changes us. That's true. That's true. And one of the ways that it changes us is instead of us pushing each other away, it draws us together. All right? And that's part of the, the purpose of prayer. So let's, let's read this first section here in James chapter 5. And we'll pick up today in verse 13. And here's what he says. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. All right, let's stop there. Prayer comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And it makes sense that prayer would be that way because there are no two circumstances of life that are identical. And if you've prayed much in your life, you realize you have different ways of praying. There's some times where the only thing you can get out is, oh God, help, you know? There's other times where you have prayer where your heart's broken and you're talking in some of the closest, most intimate voice that you have with God of sorting things out. There's other times that you're praying in anger or frustration or irritation. There's lots of different ways that we pray. But as Christians, we learn to pray without ceasing. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We're taught to pray. And the first thing that he brings up here is he says, when we're suffering, we pray. Right? When when we're suffering, we pray. But also, when we're rejoicing, we pray. When we're grieving, we pray. When we're sick, we pray. When we're healthy, we pray. When we're battling sin, we pray. When we have victory over sin, we pray. And prayer is meant to become this this instinctual thing in the life of a Christian. Where it's like your go-to. It's your automatic response. You're always praying. You're always in a, a place of prayer. We're people of prayer as Christians. That's part of who we are. All right, so what is it that I mean by that? Because you might even be thinking, okay, well, wait a minute. What, is this, what does this mean? Pray without ceasing. How is that supposed to happen? What, what is prayer? Well, a simple way, a simple definition of prayer, describing prayer. Prayer is simply conversation with God. Okay, it's conversation with God. We have these perceived, preconceived notions um, on prayer. And, and we have these big ideas of, well, this is what prayer is, and this is what prayer isn't, and how am I supposed to do all this? But with prayer, for instance, it doesn't have to be spoken out loud. That may be one thing. It's like, man, I really need to pray, but i got to get somewhere where nobody can hear me. You don't have to pray out loud. God can hear what you're praying in your heart and mind. Nothing is closed to God. Your eyes don't have to be closed. Your head doesn't have to be bowed. You know, you don't have to kneel down. Although sometimes all those things help. (laughs) You know, show me in the Bible where it says you must close your eyes if you want to pray to God. No, it doesn't say that. But I'll tell you the truth. A lot of times it's a whole lot easier for me to focus on God and pray with my eyes closed than if I had my eyes open. 
right? The language of prayer is another thing that we think, oh, I've got I've to really work this up. I better get my stuff together. I better write down like a, a rough draft first before I come to God. And I better use the big words, the Bible words. You know, what's that sanctification? How do I work that into prayer? Like I've got, I've got to come up with this. No, you don't have to have special language to address God and to talk to God. It doesn't have to be eloquent or regal. The most important part isn't how you say it, it's to whom you say it. All right, the, the key about prayer is that we don't pray to other people. We don't pray, pray to nature or the spirit in the sky. We pray to God. That's what the prayer of a Christian is. And just like a regular conversation between people, we both speak and we listen in prayer. If you're going to have a conversation with somebody, that's where the word converse even comes into play, right? You talk, they talk. You talk, they talk. I listen, you listen. We're having a conversation. Prayer is conversation with God. It's not just I throw out whatever I need to say at God to God. All right? And also, just like conversations between people, ongoing relationships are, have ongoing conversations. There's lots of things that you, you'll talk about with a friend that when you come back to that friend later, you're, you say, hey, remember last time we were together, we talked about this? How'd that turn out? What happened with that? Or what's going on, right? There's an ongoing relationship and there's ongoing conversation. That's the way it is with us in prayer with God. And prayer is meant to be that regular part of the Christian life. That's why Paul would write, it's, you're praying without ceasing. You're always talking to God. You're always bringing everything that's happening in your life to him. And you're listening to him. And you're asking him for guidance and direction. And here, though, in this section in James, he's going to give us a few specific examples of times that a Christian should pray. And he's going to unpack it a little bit for us. The first that he lists there in verse 13 is, I think, the most natural time for a human to pray. It's when we're suffering. When things are bad. Even people that have maybe been Christians but haven't prayed in years, when something bad happens, all of a sudden they remember how to pray. Right? Because when we're suffering, when something hurts, when something's not right, something's not okay, when we're afraid, when we're in pain, when we're in stress, duress, suffering, we pray. And, and that is an absolutely appropriate time to pray. And the Bible teaches us that God's heart is actually with those who are suffering. God cares when you're suffering. Throughout the scripture, he talks about the orphan and the widow and the exploited, the refugee, the sick, and how God cares for those people and loves those people. Those that are in the most pain and struggle in life, those who are most rejected on this earth, have the greatest advocate in heaven. He cares about the people that are suffering. And as Christians, we should go to our Heavenly Father when we suffer. Why? Well, for one thing, He cares about us more than anyone else. And He has unlimited power. Why wouldn't you go to God when you're suffering? All right? Not only that, we learn that Jesus suffered. So Jesus, our Savior, He came to earth and He went through suffering. He went through pain. It's one of the descriptions in the Bible about Jesus. He was a man acquainted with, with suffering. And no matter the reason for your suffering, the Lord will suffer with you. So constantly talk with him through your sorrow and pain 
and remember that you're not alone. If you are suffering here today, I've got two verses that remind us of this here that I want to read to you. The first one's from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And listen, it says, who comforts us in all our affliction. If you're suffering here today, pray. God wants to comfort you and comfort your heart. In Isaiah 43, it's, he says, fear not. This is God speaking. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, he's talking about struggle and suffering here. I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. All right? So the first thing that he calls us to here, he says, hey, if you're suffering, pray. And then he goes on there in verse 13. And he, he says, and, and let's flip to the other side. All right? If you're, if you're suffering, pray. But if, if you're cheerful... If, if, you, if, if you're in a good place, pray. And the way he describes it here is with praise. Praise, you may not know this, but praise can actually be a form of prayer. Okay? Um, why? Because we're still conversing with God as we declare our joy in his goodness. Okay, when we gather together and we try to sing these songs of praise. These are praise songs. If you didn't know that, that's what we're doing. What we're doing is we're declaring the truth about who God is. And a good song of praise and a song of worship is a song that describes the attributes of God. The faithfulness of God. The goodness of God. The forgiveness of God. The mercy of God. The love of God. And as we gather in together to sing those things, what we're, what we're needing to do, if we want to do this right, is we enter into a place of worship. We're actually praying. We're thinking about God. We're, we're delighting in God. We're describing these things back to God. That's what true praise is. That's what it's supposed to be. We're, we're not just singing a song or expressing emotions into space. We're directing the, those words and feelings to him. And that's what the transition from just music to worship actually is. So what, is, what does James say here? He says, yeah, if you're suffering, pray. If you're happy, pray. Whether you're sad, happy, in between, pray. Now, I, I do want to say this, a little side note here. So far, what James has described is he, he's talking about personal prayer. It's about the individual. He says, if you personally are suffering, you should pray. If you personally are happy, you should pray. Okay? But prayer is also important as a group. Learning to pray as a group. It, prayer is not only a private thing between a Christian and God. It's also meant to be something that's shared among the church. And this is part of the reason that prayer draws people together as a church. Now that shouldn't seem strange to you because we're, we're familiar with having conversations with a group of people. That's not weird to us. I mean, that, our life groups, our small groups that meet throughout the week, that's what they are. It's a small group of people coming together and having a conversation together. Uh, at work, you do this all the time, right? M most of you, if you don't, if, if you're not a, a at-home worker, even if you are, a lot of times that's what a Zoom meeting is, right? You're getting other people together and you're talking about things. You're figuring out solutions. You're understanding things. They're talking, you're talking. We're talking together. This is the same kind of a thing. You can have this with, with corporate prayer or group prayer. 
we can come together as a group and talk to God. Um, turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to 2 Chronicles. And I'm, I'm asking you to turn there because it's not going to be on the screen because it's a long passage of Scripture. Um, 2 Chronicles, if you go back into the Old Testament, you see the kings. That's a, a, a big section. First, Second Kings, then it comes First, Second Chronicles. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we have a good example of people coming together in prayer. A group of people gathering together to pray. All right, and that's why I want to show you this. So in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, starting in, in verse 19, now I'll just give you a little background here. The people of Israel, well actually specifically the people of the southern kingdom of Israel, of Judah, have this king named Jehoshaphat. Great name, Jehoshaphat. All right, and King Jehoshaphat is on the throne. Things are going okay. He's a good godly king. Um, but there's a, a bunch of the, the nations around him have gathered together and they, they've combined their forces and they're coming to try to take Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. All right? And Jehoshaphat is stuck because he's like, okay, this is one of those suffering moments. We're in trouble. Everybody's gathering against us. What are we supposed to do? And this is what we find here in Jeho Jehoshaphat um, in his prayer to God. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1, it says this. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Aren't you glad that I gave you the background on that? Because I could have read you that sentence and you'd have been like, oh boy. All right. So some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. These are places that you'll learn about someday. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. All right, he's coming to pray. He wants to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. That's where you don't eat for a period of time to focus on, on spiritual things. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah, and they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, this is his prayer, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not? God in heaven, you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. So here's what he says. He says, look, the reason we even built this place to worship is because we knew that when something bad was going to happen, what our ancestors said was they'd gather together and they'd seek you. That's what we're doing right now. All right? And so he goes on, and he says... Um, he says there, where are we? Verse 10, he says, And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. 
but our eyes are on you. And meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord in this prayer meeting and with their little ones, their wives and their children. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeel, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of a valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. What happened? The people as a group had a problem. So the people as a group came together to seek God. And as they gathered together to seek God, God heard their prayer. And God responded to them. As you go on and read the story, exactly what that prophecy was from that man, that's what happened. There was an incredible victory that was given to the people. And that's what we find in Scripture. When churches, when the people of God have an issue that they share, they gather together and they pray. They learn to pray together. When you fast forward now up to the New Testament, in the book of Acts, after Jesus had resurrected And ascended into heaven. He told his disciples, his followers, he said, hey, go get together and wait for me. And you know what they were doing in Acts chapter 1? They were doing this very thing. It says in Acts 1 verse 14, it says, All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They gathered together as a group of God's people to pray. And when you go on into Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit comes, where are they found? In an upper room praying together. They needed God to move on their behalf. They needed to know what to do next. They gathered together and they prayed. And I'll tell you guys the truth. I have a vision for our church to be a church of prayer. A church of people that gather together to pray and to seek the Lord in it. Every Sunday, you may not know this, but every Sunday, we did it today. At 9.30 in the morning, we, we go out here and there's a, a handful of us usually, the people that have helped set up or people that have come early and we gather together out there and we pray. And I'm not telling you it's the most amazing prayer service you've ever could imagine. Come, you'll be blown away. No, it's just people trying to get together and pray. <laughs> but it's still good and it's wonderful. And whatever is on our collective hearts, sometimes it's individual things that we're praying about. Other times, like today, we're praying for the people of Ukraine and everything that's going on in the world around us. We gather together to seek the Lord and say, Lord, will you move on our behalf? Will you meet us? We need you. Right? And so you're all invited anytime. Come a little early. Yeah, it's 15 minutes, 930 to 945. Even you can pray for 15 minutes. Right? Now, He also says, as we go on in this passage, he says that not only do we pray as individuals, do we pray together as a group, but we can also have others pray for us. This is one of the benefits of being part of the family of God. You can have the other family members pray for you. This is called intercessory prayer or intercession. You're praying for someone else on behalf of someone else. And that's what he talks about in verse 14. And specifically what he says there is he says, when you're sick... If there's sickness, if is any among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, 
anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a tradition. If you've heard that for the first time today, you're like, whoa, what, what is this anointing of oil? What is all this? This is a tradition that is actually passed on through all the centuries up even till now. Um, this, this anointing of oil and, and what, this is, what this is all about. Um, when I'm asked, I will come and pray for those who are sick and bring oil with me. I, I don't have any on me right now. I've got some in my bag, actually. A little, little vial of oil. And, and all that I will do is I will anoint that person with oil, a little dot on your forehead, and pray. Okay? Um, and, and if you haven't been around church as much, that might seem really strange. <laughs> like, what on earth is this oil thing? What, what's happening here? Um, oil, it, it's, it's not as weird as you might think. Oil is meant to be a symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit. Just like in communion, when we take communion and we have the, the bread and the cup, they're meant to be symbols representing the body and blood of Jesus. The oil is meant to be a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and the oil itself is not magical. It's not even medicinal. It, the one I use actually smells good. <laughs> but it's just, it's just oil, okay? And it's a tangible reminder of the presence and power of God. That's what's going on there. And I, I do also want to say this, especially for those of you, and I know we've got some people in here that are like on the edge of Bible scholar um, level. Um, I do believe that James is describing a person in need of a physical healing here. And, and so if this part doesn't make a lot of sense to you, go on pause for a second. For those of you who really care about the Greek and all that. Um, here's the thing. The word sick it's used twice in this passage. The word sick in the Greek is astheneo. And it can also be translated as weak. So some scholars look at this passage and say, no, he's not talking about physical illness. He's talking about spiritual illness. Because you could translate the word sick as weak. And so then if you say, if any among you is weak, let him call and be prayed for and all that. Okay? Um, and, and some do argue that it's a spiritual weakness. I don't think that's the case. Simply because we don't find a tradition that's come through the centuries for anointing people that are weak spiritually. But we do have a tradition that's been passed on for generations about those that are sick to, to have this, um, this anointing, all right? And, and when we pray for the sick, we're asking God to supernaturally heal the one we're praying for. That's what we're asking. And here's the thing. Sometimes he does. Other times, he does not. All right, so what I want you to also understand is that this verse isn't a recipe for guaranteed healing. And, and there are some churches and some people that say that's the case. They say, look, right there in James, James chapter 5, here's all you got to do. You got to get some good oil, and you call some elders, and when you pray, boom, it's going to happen. They're all going to be healed. But that's not what we find. That's not the way it works. Uh, and it's not a recipe for that. However... It is an opportunity for healing. It is an opportunity for healing. And I think that's an opportunity that we should take. And if you're sick, you think that's an opportunity you should take too, right? Which is exactly what James says. Call in the elders. Include the church in this. Does God have the power to physically heal? Yes. He's God. So should we ask? My answer is yes. All right? 
Now, this is why this verse goes on and gets a little more confusing, why some people say that we're only referring to spiritual um, healing, because of verse 15. Let's, let's read it again together. Come back to me if I lost you there for a minute. In verse 15, it says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this part is a little confusing because it, it seems that James is actually mingling now the physical and the spiritual in this. Which should make sense. Because already what we're going to see from this whole passage is James says, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, pray. All the time, pray. Things are good, things are bad. We talked about this, right? Pray. But apparently, he, he now is shifting to talk about spiritual sickness and ultimate resurrection. Because what he says, notice there, he says that the prayer of faith will save and this is the part that really confuses the Bible nerds because they're like, whoa, he used the word sozo in the Greek, which is the same word for salvation. And when we see that word all the way through the Bible about Jesus saves, Jesus is our Savior, it's all based on this, we, it's called soteriology and theology. It's sozo, that word. And James says, yeah, a prayer of faith is going to save that person. Now, is he talking about the sick person who's sick and it's going to raise him up when it says raise him up? Is he talking about resurrection or is he talking about, oh, he was sick and laying in bed and he now can get up out of bed? Well, I think he's, he's blending these things here. And he even refers to immediately the forgiveness of sins. It seems like he's describing a spiritual work done in prayer. Now, here's also, I think, why James is talking about this. In, in this ancient time, in James's time, there were certainly some who believed that all sickness was the result of somebody's sin. Okay? So just like in the past couple years, people are all looking to try to blame who was behind COVID. We're going to find that one person who did wrong to get COVID to the world. Well, in the ancient world, a lot of times people had this superstition that if anybody got sick, ooh, they must have been sinning. They got a little head cold, ooh, what are you doing? You got really sick? Oh, you must have done something bad. All right, we even see it with Jesus' disciples. In, in John chapter 9, the disciples are, are heading along with Jesus, and they come across this blind man. And they see this, this blind man in John chapter 9, and the disciples ask Jesus. They say, Jesus, who sinned to make this man blind? Was it his parents? You know, what did they do? And then they even ask, or was it he himself? Like, what? The kid, the guy was born blind. You tell me he was sinning in his mother's womb? Like, I mean, that's the logic behind this. But that's what they say. They say to Jesus, who did it? Who was the sin? What caused this blindness? And Jesus is like, nobody. That's not what we're dealing with here. That's not the way it works. That, that's not what happens. Now, to some degree, that is true, right? All physical sickness and even death itself is the result of sin in the world. But it's the result of the general fallenness of the world, not necessarily a person's own sin. Now, sometimes we get ourselves sick for our own purposes, but that's a whole different conversation. But what do we know about the, the prayers of faith that we see here in this? He's talking about that. He says the prayer of faith is going to save. Prayers of faith are received by God. And ultimately, whether we live or die because of physical sickness, those who have believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior will have their sins forgiven and will be resurrected and given eternal life. And James says, take advantage of that grace. 
Pray in faith. Receive the Lord. Let him wash away your sins and give you eternal life. And then in verse 16, he gives us one more example that is a good time for us to pray. And, and when he gives us that one, what he says is, it's a good time to pray when you have sinned. When's it, when you're suffering, when you're happy, when things are rough, but also if you've sinned. The Bible describes sin as darkness. Okay? And sin loves to remain hidden. We attempt to hide our sins from other people, but we also have this kind of silly idea that we can hide our sins from God. You can't. You can't hide them from God. But when we sin, even though we've become citizens of light, as the Bible describes us, we become citizens of light, it doesn't mean that we won't sin. Christians still struggle with sin. But when we do, we're called to confess our sins and repent. Listen to 1 John 1, 5-9 and how he describes it here. It says this, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how it works in the life of a Christian. When you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. But what it means is you have the access to have those sins cleansed through the power of Jesus. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions, hides them, will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So practically, how does this work out? If you were raised with a Roman Catholic background, you know that the, the tradition that they practice is confession to priests. And they go and they, every week or more, they go and, and confess, hey, here's my, here's my sin. Um, what am I going to do about it? That's not what we see here. That's not what's described here. In fact, look at it again. He, he tells us to confess to each other, to other Christians. And, and I think that there's some wisdom that needs to be um, carried along with this. Warren Wiersbe, the, uh, a Bible scholar, says this. He says, we confess our sins, first of all, to the Lord. That's the first John passage that we just looked at. But we must also confess them to those who have been affected by them. We must never confess sin beyond the circle of that sin's influence. Private sin requires private confession. Public sin requires public confession. Here's the thing, guys. What we're not going to do at the end of the service is have every, each person stand up and confess to the room, tell us your sins, your deepest, darkest secrets. <laughs> it's not effective. It's not helpful. It's not useful. <laughs> Um, it can actually cause more problems than it, it needs to. But when we sin against someone else, what the Bible calls us to is to restore that relationship. I tell you guys often that the definition of sin is anything that destroys relationship. If, if it destroys relationship between you and God or you and another person, that's sin. Okay, it can be a simple thing, a silly thing, an important thing, a huge thing. But if it breaks relationship... That's a sinful thing. 
And what we're called to, confession, is meant to restore relationship. At other times, especially if we're struggling with an ongoing sin, we may need to find a trusted friend that we can confide in and confess to and ask for prayer. And it's back to that, pray for one another. All right? That's the point of it. It's not just to shame you. It's not just to, to make you feel really guilty and really bad. Okay, now I can really get forgiveness because I feel awful. That's not the point. Confession is meant for restoration. And what he also tells us and reminds us, and this is important, when it comes to prayer, prayer is powerful. James calls the church to pray prayers of faith in all circumstances, including our physical and our spiritual needs. But the prayer that James describes is a powerful tool for the community of faith. Prayer is powerful, is what the Bible tells us. 1 John 5, 14 to 15 says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Spiritual work requires spiritual power. And the spiritual power that we require comes from one place, God. You can't stir up spiritual power and make yourself spiritually powerful. There's one source of spiritual power, and it's the God of the universe. And that is where our prayer receives its power. And now we finish here in an illustration of that power. And, he, and James turns to the Old Testament to talk about the prophet Elijah. Look there, verse 17. We're almost done here. Hang with me. He says this. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a person just like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah was a, uh, he was a prophet in the, in the Old Testament um, in the days of Ahab, actually just right before the whole Jehoshaphat story that we looked at earlier. And Ahab was one of the most wicked kings uh, in all the Bible. You can find that, that story in 1 Kings 17 to 19. And even though Elijah had to withstand this wicked king in a sinful nation, he did get to experience the power of God in some pretty radical ways. And because of Ahab's abandonment of God, God said to Elijah, hey, you go tell Elijah it's not going to rain anymore. And you pray that it doesn't rain and it's not going to rain. And I'm not going to let it rain again until I tell you that it's time to pray again to let the rain come back. <laughs> All right? And that's what happened it did not rain again until Elijah petitioned the Lord. And here's the, the other thing that I want you to notice. Prayer is powerful. It is powerful, but the power of prayer isn't for us. It's for the purposes of God. Okay? And when we align ourselves with the purposes of God, we will experience the power of prayer. I told you at the beginning of this message that prayer shapes us. It shapes us. And it shapes us in a way to make us useful for the glory and honor of God. Now, when you're used that way for the glory and honor of God, what you find is it blesses you in return incredibly in, in more ways than we can imagine, but we're empowered for things far beyond ourselves. And that's how he finishes this entire letter of James. Last two verses. Here it is, guys. He says, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner 
from his wandering, will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. We know that we can't save anyone in our power. But the power of God is in the earth for salvation. And God uses us in it. And we know that the desire of God is that all would come to salvation. And as we allow God to work in us and through us, we can be used for incredible things like this. Like guiding another human back to Jesus for salvation. And prayer is a place that we grow into these people. If you've heard before, hey, you should share your faith, you should tell other people about Jesus, and you've never been able to do that, and you've never done that, you've never shared your faith, or you've never, you know, helped somebody understand about God, the first place to start that isn't on the street corner somewhere, or in the neighborhood, or even at work. The first place to start that process is by prayer. (laughs) It's through prayer. It's asking God to empower you to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it. And it's praying, asking God to give you those opportunities that he knows where the ripe fruit is. That's what we're called to. Prayer is the place that we grow into those people. So what's the call here today? How do we grow in practical faith? We lean into and we learn to pray. If you haven't heard yet, you're supposed to be people of prayer as Christians. And the church community that James describes is a group of people who are devoted to Jesus and they're committed to prayer. And the things that we do, the people that we are, should be shaped by prayer. And that's why I think it's fitting that we finish this letter focused on prayer. We've learned all kinds of practical steps in James in this letter. And prayer may not seem quite as practical as controlling your anger or watching your mouth. But it's one of the primary ways that God shapes us. So, as you go through your day, as we move into a time of responsive worship, Dave, you can come on back up. Here's my question to you. Does this describe your prayer life? Are you people of prayer? Have you been praying? Are you regularly in conversation with God? And I hope that this is challenging you to grow in your prayer life. And I pray that God would shape our church through prayer as we commit ourselves to seek him in it. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, and I thank you for your word. And God, I just ask that today we would be people that are leaning into prayer, people that are growing in the power of prayer. Lord, let us, let us uh, not ignore this incredible opportunity that we have to converse with you and to talk with you. May we not just be people that pray on Sunday mornings, not just be people that pray when they hear me pray to, to you for them on their behalf, but Lord, that each one of us would become people of prayer, people that know you, people that follow you, people that are being transformed by you. And God, I ask that you would make us a healthy church, a church that is full of prayer, that is powered by prayer, a church that is led and guided and and walks through this confusing world through the knowledge and understanding of you that we receive by prayer. So God, we pray that you would speak to us that you would let us hear what you say and and make us into people of prayer. And it is in your name we pray, amen.